you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 13, John 13, and we will be reading verses 31 through 35, if, if uh, the, uh, the text is also printed for you in your bulletins. We kicked off our new year in the book of Habakkuk, um, which despite the, the, the heaviness of, of that book, uh, I, I hope was, was meaningful to, uh, to, to where many of us find ourselves right now in a, in a season of life that for, uh, for various reasons I think has been um, difficult for, for just about all of us. Uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks we'll begin a, a longer series in the book of James, calling it the wisdom in the way of Jesus. And so um, that'll be in a couple of weeks, but in between that time, uh, I'm, I'm just going to spend a couple of weeks of what I'm calling going back to the basics. There's, there's usually some kind of small sermon series that I do every year that kind of grounds who we are and, and what we do. And, and that's kind of the purpose here, looking at this new community that Jesus is creating and talking about here in John 13. So again, our reading is John chapter 13, uh, beginning at verse 31. This is the word of the Lord. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Jesus lays out his heart for the church in the closing chapters of the Gospel of John which is where we are. There are many things that God is calling us to be. He's calling us to be a truth-telling community. He's calling us to be a holy community. He's calling us to be a hospitable and generous community. He's calling us to be a praying community, and that's what we'll look at next week. But in order for those things to be true, what first needs to be true? We have to be a community. Is there anything about the church more countercultural to the spirit of our age than this truth that we are called to be in community? Is there anything more countercultural to the spirit of our age than to be committed to a people and to a body? Let alone a diverse body. People of different backgrounds, people of, of different socio political backgrounds and understandings, a multi ethnic people, a multi generational people. In 2019, prior to the pandemic, 14% of Americans said they never went to church. At the end of 2020, that number was 53%. This is according to a Gallup poll. That same Gallup poll said 22% of those who professed to be Christians said they had never gone to church in the past year, and that included even tuning into a virtual service. One-fifth of practicing Christians said, I don't need community. I don't need the church anymore. Now here's the thing, every day I think we're gaining first-hand experience of how easy it is to abandon the church. We're gaining first-hand experience of how easy it would be to say, I, I just don't really need this community in my life. Um, even outside of our own experience, how many news stories come across our, our, 
our, uh, our eyes every single week that, that speak to stories that are just disillusioning and discouraging and frankly embarrassing to the cause of Christ. Maybe sometimes you have felt like joining a fifth of all professing Christians. I don't know about you, but there are times when maybe out of everything we confess in the Apostles' Creed, right? God the Creator, the Son, the Redeemer, maybe the hardest thing to confess is I believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church, and I believe in a communion of saints, a church and a communion that at least statistically a lot of our fellow Christians are abandoning. And yet at the end of Jesus' time with his disciples, this message about the community that he is creating was his priority, even as his hour was approaching, this is where he turns. See, I hear a fifth of of professing Christians abandoning the church, and and yet I I don't want to judge that. I mean, I think that's lazy anyway, right? We're in church this morning, so it'd be one thing to say, like, we're the superior ones and pat ourselves on the back. That's pretty ugly. I don't want to do that. Instead, what I want to do is make a case from the words of Jesus of just how beautiful this community is. I want to present a case for the good of community because out of everything Jesus could have left his disciples with, this what was on his his heart. That has to mean something to us, that this was on the heart of the Lord Jesus, even as the cross was, was in his view. And so what about this community is Jesus telling us about? What kind of community do we need to be grounded in? And so if I could give you a thesis statement, it would be something like this. Jesus is calling us to a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting community known and authenticated by her love for one another. Okay, so Jesus is saying, I'll repeat that, he's creating this this God-glorifying, Christ-exalting community that is known and authenticated by what? By love. By how we love one another. So those are our our two points. Uh, We're a glorying community and we're a loving community. And what does that mean? What are the implications? Well, diving into our passage, you probably picked up on this. It's pretty obvious. It's in our faces. Jesus is using repetition. uh, So we make no mistake of what he's talking about here. And so do you see the word he uses five times in the first two verses? It's repetitive and redundant. It sounds maybe even clunky. But that's the point. You can't miss it. It's about glory. Jesus talks about glory. And then at the end of the passage, verses 34 and 35, he starts repeating himself again. What word does he use at the end of the passage? He uses love. Glory and love. These are the two big important words. Um, This is on our plates. Some of the most important ideas of of who we are and, and, and speak to what we do as a community. Now, in Scripture, glory has a broad range of meaning, but you can reasonably simplify that broad range of meaning when I talk about glory by saying glory has to do with value, authority, and beauty. Okay, so glory has to do with those three ideas, value, authority, and beauty. So when we talk about glorifying God, this basically means that we are ascribing value to God. We are by nature glory givers. To be a human being is to be a glory dispenser. We have this capacity to put our value onto someone or something, and that's what we do. We're glory dispensers. Now, where do we see us ascribing value as glory dispensers in our culture? The entertainment industry is a good example of that. You know, it's built to amuse and distract and entertain, but maybe its enduring legacy is that it creates channels wherein we ascribe glory. 
Same with sports or politics, which are just different wings of the entertainment industry. Think of a teenager's bedroom, the walls of their bedroom. What do you have? You have a, 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 maybe a sports team or an athlete has a poster on the wall, or maybe there's a teen heartthrob, or there's a band. What is, the, what is the kid saying? What were you saying as a teenager? You were saying, this is where I find value. This is who receives my glory. You come to a theater production at the end at the curtain call, right? And you have the bowing and the curtsy, and everyone's pointing to each other about how great they are, and everyone's clapping. What's happening? It's a glory fest. Everyone's giving glory. We're not immune to it. My family has been known to hear crazy noises coming from me when my favorite teams are playing. What am I doing? I'm giving glory. Romantic love is glorifying love, to, to gaze into the eyes of the beloved and say, you're amazing, and for that beloved to look at you and say, no, you're amazing. It's a glory fest. Glory means value. Glory also means authority. Verse 31, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. This is his favorite reference for himself. On the one hand, it conceals, right, because sons of men are just anyone who's, who's a boy, anyone born of a of a man. It's humble, it's inconspicuous, it doesn't sound flashy, but on the other hand, this is the title that Jesus uses that reveals his divinity, it reveals his sovereignty. It goes back to Daniel 7. He, this is the one who receives the kingdom. It's a title of authority. The son of man is a king-like figure, a king who entails power and authority, a king who requires subjection and submission. And so here in our passage, what do we have? The father and son glorifying one another in their mutual submission to one another because they both have authority. Really, Jesus is saying, the father says to the son, you are great. And what does the son do? He goes back to the father and says, you're great. They're celebrating each other's authority. Now, where do we see glory like this in our society? A four-star general walks into the room, and what does he have? Authority, his glory. A world-renowned heart surgeon walks into the hospital with an aura around him. What do we call that? That's glory because of that authority that he has. A judge that orchestrates his or her courtroom with this clear, laser-eyed commitment to the rule of law, and he or she just controls that room in this beautiful, authoritative way. That judge has glory. Glory means value, authority. It also means beauty. I think we see a good picture of this in Luke 9 when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain to pray. This is on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John fall asleep, as they often do when they're with Jesus and asked to pray. And they wake up and, and they see Jesus and his face is altered and, and his robes are dazzlingly white. Now, he, they see his glory. And so what do they mean? What do we mean when we say they saw his glory? Well, that maybe has something to do with authority, but I think it has to do with beauty. This is the glory of Mount Everest. This is the glory of the Milky Way galaxy captured by incredible telescopes. This is the glory of a sunrise or a sunset. It's like all of those beautiful things that we experience in life, right? All leading us, all like breadcrumbs driving us to the beauty of the Lord. And so you put them together and you see glory as value and authority and beauty. And they all come together to communicate this idea of heaviness, of weightiness, You've heard this before, the, the word in Hebrew for glory is the same word for heavy. And there's an interesting use because in Hebrew, the same word for glory is also the same word for liver. Because the liver is the heaviest internal organ. Glory is heavy. Value, authority, beauty, all getting at something a little different, but all communicating um, heaviness. 
And so why spend so much time going through what glory means? Why is this important? Well, first of all, Jesus talks about it. He says it four times. That's really important to grasp what glory is. But, but secondly, we're talking about it because glory is incredibly relevant to your life. It's incredibly relevant to you tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. As, as you prepare to go to work or as you get the kids off to school or kids, as you are going to school, there is nothing more important or relevant to your life than glory. It doesn't seem like it, right? It seems like there are more pressing issues like work and marriage and relationships and parenting and friendships and dating and money. All of those things seem so much more practical. But it's not true. It's not true at all. I know those are the things that seem like they occupy your life, but there is something underneath all of those things, which is your heart. And your heart, biblically speaking, is not the seat of your emotions. It's the command center for your life. It's the command center for your feelings, sure, but also your thoughts and your actions. They all flow out of your heart. And your heart is created to give glory, to give heaviness to a glorious or heavy figure. You can't help but give glory to something you find glorious. And so you may give glory to the rams. You can glorify your clean home. You can glorify your kids' activities. You can glorify your physical image. This is how you were created, and yet you were created to only find true fulfillment when you glorify God. In other words, when you give heaviness to the heaviest. When you give heaviness to the heaviest. Now what does this have to do with community? Why is Jesus bringing this up when he's talking to his disciples about when he leaves and and how they're to go on and his heart, his vision for the people that he is creating? You and I, the church. I think it's this reason. The church is the place that shows the world the one most deserving of glory. We come here to celebrate the one we were created to glorify. There are plenty of things in the world that are beautiful, right? A symphony is beautiful. You're not going to find that here. We don't even have a church choir, but even if we did, we couldn't rival uh, the King's College uh, Choir of Cambridge. Not in a million years. There are beautiful paintings. We don't have them here. This room has an aesthetic. I'll leave your, uh, your judgment on that aesthetic to yourself. But it's here where we are saying there is still something yet more beautiful. With the psalmist, we're saying, one thing I've asked of the Lord, that I will spend all the days of my life in his house just to gaze upon his beauty. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, the beauty of forgiveness, the beauty of grace, the beauty of the cross. Likewise, there are plenty of things that are valuable, right? A a family is, is, is valuable, A good education is valuable. Fulfilling job is valuable. Politics are valuable. But here we ascribe value to the one who is most precious and valuable. The one worthy of the glory, majesty, dominion, and authority that he already has and will always have. You know, the dysfunction of our culture and of our society and of our homes is, of course, due to sin. We're surrounded by the effects of the sin. We contribute our own effects uh, of our sinfulness. And yet, let's take it a step further. The dysfunction of our culture and of our society and our homes is also a failure of glory. 
The dysfunction of the church in 2022 America is a failure of glory. Have I made something too heavy that isn't? Paul Tripp speaks of life as a glory war. There's a war going on between the awe of God, he says, and all of the awe-inspiring things that are around you that God created. It's such a beautiful way to look at life. We are all in the midst of a glory war. But it's here in this glorying community where every Sunday, together as a people, we are called, forgiven, addressed, fed, and blessed by the heaviest one. All right, so in our passage, Jesus tells us about glory. And maybe we're thinking, well, it's one thing to see Jesus. That would certainly be glory before our eyes. Uh, but what happens when Jesus is gone? Then what do we do? How do we, how do we get our glory fixed? And Jesus says that the way the outside world will know that he is glorious is not by his physical presence, right? He is ascending soon to the right hand of the Father. Um, He also will not be be shown to the outside world by merely talking about him or or us teaching about Jesus' glory. That only goes so far. Instead, it's by the way that you and I and all of God's followers love one another. That's how the world will see Jesus' glory. Jesus says that our lost world will be drawn to him through the church, and in particular, how the church is observed as a community that loves. Raise your hand if that sounds crazy. Don't really raise your hand. We all should raise our hands. That sounds crazy. The world will be drawn to him in how the church is observed as a community that loves. Here's the thing. It's not just crazy in this day and age. It's always been crazy. Read your New Testament. What do you find? Well, you find Peter, even after he's been restored by Jesus, you find Peter uh, as a leader in the church, one of the top three leaders in the church. At one point, he discriminates against Gentile believers in favor of Jewish believers. Paul calls him out in Galatians 2 for betraying the gospel. That didn't take long. You read 1 Corinthians, and you even wonder, is this even a church? And yet Paul insists that he's going to talk to them like they are a church. But these are a people who are suing one another. There's sexual immorality going on in the church. They, they're arguing over who their favorite leader is. They're arguing over who has the best spiritual gift. You have this fractured body of believers, and it looks nothing like John 13. In Philippians 4, what Lou read from, at one point, and by the way, that's probably the best book in the New Testament in terms of Paul being joyful, and he's celebrating just how faithful the Philippian church is, and yet you still have two women who are fighting amongst themselves, who Paul warns. In 2 Timothy, Paul laments how many have abandoned him. Demas is in love with this present world, and he deserted me. What does that sound like? A glory issue. He was in love with this world. Alexander the coppersmith did me harm. Beware of him yourself. Jesus says, you will see my glory in my church, and yet from the beginning, the church has been a mess. And of course, the church has never stopped being a mess. Yet it's in this messy place filled with sinners who are forgiven by Jesus, where God is at work doing something distinctive. He's creating and calling a community that will be defined by love. See, the bumper sticker is just half right. Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven and then called and created into this community of love. It's not easy, is it? Remember, Jesus' yoke is easy. Why does it feel heavy? Because we're hard. (laughs) 
we're hard. He's not the hard one, we're hard. But Jesus is creating us into this community that will be defined by love, a distinctive kind of love. Pardon my buzzword, it's gospel love. It is buzzwordy, but we have to have something that, that sets apart this kind of love that is distinctive. And how is it distinctive? Well, you will know that you have seen gospel love when you see love characterized by repentance, forgiveness, and loving across difference. You will know that you have come across gospel love, love that is born out of Christ's work, love that is grounded in the work of Jesus when you see love characterized by repentance, forgiveness, and loving across differences. Think about repentance, all right? In the relationships we have with each other, what's, what's some of the hardest parts of, of being in relationship? It's when people fail us. It's when people mess up against us. Like This is the brokenness of the world that we uh, experience every day of our lives. We have parents against children, children against parents, siblings fall away from one another, marriages break down, friendships are ended, neighbors turn against neighbors, church members turn against church members. What do we typically need when someone messes up against us? We need someone to acknowledge how they have hurt me and apologize. It's not, it's not rocket science. We need someone to recognize that they've hurt me and to apologize. But that's not the normal way, is it? That's not the ordinary way. What is the normal, ordinary way? We rationalize our sin. We blame shift. Why, well, I only did that because you. Well, if you stopped doing that, then I wouldn't have to. When you take a step back and you see repentance, it feels like a miracle every time. What does it mean to kind of bring this home? What does it mean to have our homes saturated with the gospel? I think it means repentance is is the theme. Parents repenting to their children, right? How do I raise my children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? That has to include the idea of parents repenting to your children because we don't raise our children in the fear of us. We're sinners too. We have God-given authority that we uphold, but here's the problem. We exercise that God-given authority sinfully, poorly, weakly. So we need to repent. If the offender has the obligation to repent, then the offended has the obligation to forgive. We pray this in the Lord's Prayer. Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. When you have a proper view of yourself before God... It should so humble you that you are able to extend forgiveness to others. And here's the thing. Christ-centered, gospel-saturated forgiveness still causes seismic shockwaves wherever it is experienced. There are things we experience every, every day in our life that, that, that challenge our faith, right? There, there are things that, that make us ask questions like, does any of this matter? Does the gospel actually have any impact in the real world? And then forgiveness and grace breaks through, and you realize, no, wait a second, the gospel actually makes every bit of difference in the world. Periodically, stories of these earthquakes of grace and forgiveness, they, they spread into our society, and the news cycle just stops for a second. One of these earthquakes of grace occurred a couple of months ago. Maybe you saw this story. It involved Richard Houston, a 21-year veteran of the Mesquite, Texas Police Department, who was shot and killed while responding to a domestic dispute in a grocery store parking lot. And what followed, what made that make national news, was the eulogy given by his 18-year-old daughter, Shelby. 
Her eulogy, on, on, on one hand, was, was, was very sweet. It was, it was reminiscing of times with her father. Uh, it was lamenting the fact that she will no longer have times with her father. But here's what made this story grab hold of, of national media for just a second. It's when his daughter said this at his funeral. There has been anger, grief, sadness, and confusion, and a part of me just wishes I could despise the man who did this to my father. But I can't give any part of my heart to hate him. My prayer is that someday down the road, I get time to spend with the man who shot my father, not to scream at him, not to yell at him, not to scold him, but simply to tell him about Jesus. And then she finished with this beautiful sentence, which, which I've, I've prayed over this congregation this morning. She said, in my deepest wound, I saw the glory of Jesus. Isn't that a line? To be able to say, in my deepest wound, I saw the glory of Jesus, which so speaks to this passage, doesn't it? Because she spoke of forgiveness found where? In the value, beauty, and authority of Jesus. In my deepest wound, I saw the glory of Jesus. And she said, it astounded me. You know, the unbelieving world stops to hear a word like that. Do you know why? Because it's alien. It's foreign. It's not of this world. I'd venture to say it stops us in our tracks too. And the church is a messy place. It's where repentance and forgiveness needs to take place. It's one of the first applications of a heart that has been touched by the love of Jesus because Jesus did not wait for you to repent to forgive you. That doesn't even make sense. The gospel is that at just the right time, while we were enemies, Christ died for who? The ungodly. That doesn't make any sense either. And yet that love creates a love that repents and forgives and reaches across differences. I once heard a conversion story from an Afrikaner woman. Um, Afrikaners were, were white South Africans of, of Dutch descent. And, and it started when she was in college and, and she went to just about the only place in South Africa at that time during apartheid where you could find a mixed group together, which was the church. And she was stunned because in her life, even growing up in South Africa, in her life, she had never uh, seen a meaningful gathering of, of white Afrikaner and then black Africans. That was the beginning of her conversion, she says. Something different than out there is in here. Can we say that about CPC? Can we strive for that? That something different than out there is in here. Love across differences. The broader polarization of society is, is just as much in our churches as anywhere else. It's a failure of glory and it's a failure of love because it's a failure to lean in, to press into the heart of Jesus. There's a, a pastor in our denomination who has this line that he's repeated a lot and, and I really love this line um, he says, the greatest threat to the church, and so I think it's helpful for us to maybe finish that sentence in our own heads. What would we answer to that question? What is the greatest threat to the church in this day and age? Here's what he says. He says, the greatest threat to the church remains Christ himself, because he has the authority to extinguish the light of the unrepentant church. Christ is the greatest threat to the church. 
Love within the community of God is the final apologetic. It is the greatest evidence and the greatest defense of the faith. Your belief is not the final apologetic. Jesus didn't tell the world that they can come give us a theology test. But he said they could give us a love test. The world doesn't need us to have the most sophisticated philosophical understanding of the Christian faith. I think it's important to be equipped with with what you know and and why you know it, why you believe it. But ultimately, I think most of that fruit is for you individually in your own walk with the Lord. But the ultimate evidence that we have for the world is the love that we have for the people sitting next to us in here. To say to a watching world that there's something different than out there that's in here. And as we close up, where is this love found? Where is this love grounded? It's not in my ability. It's not in yours. It's not in my goodness or yours. It's not in my strength or yours. But in the glory of the one we proclaim is love. In the one who called a people to love, and then what did he do? He didn't just send them off, did he? He went to the cross in the greatest act of love. In Jesus, there is an offering of love that will never hit empty. There is a love that is greater than my sin and your sin. A quantity of love that is limitless and infinite. And beloved, together, that's the supply of love that we tap into. Let us pray. Father, as we sit in this word, as as we steep in it, I pray that your Holy Spirit would would seal it into our hearts. I pray that we would leave this place. It's it's so easy by 4.30 this afternoon to, to forget everything that we talked about this morning. I say that as the preacher. And yet, Lord, would you seal to us these two ideas? Jesus, our master teacher, our Lord, giving us these two ideas, these two pegs on which we can hang our our hearts on of glory and love. Lord, that we would be leaving this place asking the question, where is my glory found? What is heavy in my life? And at the same time, hanging our hats on, on the other peg, the other twin idea here, of how do I love, of help me to love, of help me to live my life out of uh, not just the work and the grace of Jesus, but his passion, his heart for his own people. Lord, would you do that work? Lord, I pray for, for those in this room who don't know you and who, who see a church that um, certainly oftentimes glorifies weird things, and you see, uh, you see the church that, that, that failed to love, that, man, it seems like oftentimes there are corners of our unbelieving world, of, of just the regular out there society that seem just as loving and just as accepting as anybody else. And yet, Lord, would you reveal to them the greater love of Jesus, a love that we come here to acknowledge and to celebrate and to live out of, a love that we are committed to saying this is a love that changes. This is a love that every single day, every single minute, a love that I need. Lord, would you do that work among us this morning? I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.